Hi, it's dating coach Chris Luna from Craft Charisma. Welcome to the Craft Charisma podcast, our free audio coaching program where we interview the top experts in the world at helping you become the man you've always wanted to be. My guest today is Graham Stoney. Graham is a trauma therapist and coach as well as a comedian and musician based out of Sydney, Australia. He's the founder of the Confident Man Project, which is dedicated to helping men heal from unresolved childhood trauma and regain their natural self-confidence. He's also a therapist and coach for artists, helping them to overcome performance anxieties. Graham's main focus is working with men who've experienced emotional abandonment and or enmeshment with their mothers. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. I'm so excited to have you here. Yeah, thanks, Christopher. It's a really great opportunity. It's good to meet you. Can you tell me a little bit about your background and how you got into this line of work? Sure. Well, look, it's easy to see what I'm about to say in hindsight, but at the time it wasn't so clear. So if I rewind right to the start, basically I grew up in a family where emotions weren't handled well. And uh, I I was quite a sensitive person, so I found that uh, just navigating that whole family dynamic quite challenging, particularly with my mother uh, and also some issues with my father. And one of the ways that I dealt with that when I was very young was I was quite intelligent. I, IT computers were coming along right at that time. So I got into computing and I got into um, that kind of stuff. And it was sort of an, a bit of a, an escape for me from dealing with the problems that I had interacting with people because some of the social skills that I learned from the people around me, particularly from my parents and my family, uh, in hindsight, turned out to be not all that great as uh, in terms of the way they allow you to connect with other people. So I was basically very lonely as a kid, um, but I didn't really realize that until much later. So I escaped into computers and IT. I went to high school where I was bullied a lot. I was the youngest kid in my year. I was quite weedy. I wasn't very strong. I wasn't into sport. And my high school was very sporting dominated. So I didn't really fit in there. I uh, didn't have a very good experience of high school, primary school, similarly, I mucked up a lot because I really wanted attention, I was a very insecure kid, um, left high school, went to university, studied computer engineering, seemed like a natural fit for me, worked in that field for 20 years, absolutely loved it the first 15 and then the last five just gradually went from loving it to like I can't stand being here anymore, didn't really understand why, so I quit. Uh, and then went on this sort of journey of self-discovery and trying to work out why I'd burn out at a career that seemed incredibly good. Um, what it all came down to when I really looked at it was I was not dealing with my emotions well and I'd become very depressed. And my relationships with women didn't really work because I wasn't good at communicating how I was feeling. I uh, didn't really understand how to relate to girls because... Uh, the style of relating that I'd learnt from the way I connected with my mother just didn't work very well. Um, found her very controlling, very dominating, and that had suppressed my natural masculinity. So I did a whole bunch of courses, did a lot of training, and eventually realised that one of the steps in my own healing process was going to be helping other guys that were struggling with this not because I had it all together and had all the answers myself, but because I was just a couple of steps ahead of them and could help guys that were really struggling with what is essentially uh, emotional abandonment and parental enmeshment, which at turns we can talk a bit more about, um, helping them to overcome that so that they can be naturally confident and charismatic, which is what a guy normally is if the process goes well, the process of growing up and maturing essentially. 
So that's kind of the story in a nutshell, Christopher. Yeah, it sounds awesome. And I definitely think that these are things that some of the listeners can identify with. Can you articulate what were some of the things you felt like were going wrong growing up that didn't help you to build the emotional tools that you needed in adolescence and high school um, that you were later able to develop and help guys to begin to develop that you work with? Sure. Look, the one that immediately springs to mind when you ask that is being around conflict, um, particularly the way that my parents dealt with conflict in their relationship, or rather I would say didn't deal with conflict, uh, just led to an ongoing, it was a bit like living in a war zone. Um, and one of my clients just the other day was asking me about post-traumatic stress disorder. And um, this is a thing. You don't have to be around bombs going off to develop trauma and uh, traumatic stress, just living in an environment where you're constantly walking on eggshells, or that's how you feel, where you don't really feel safe to just relax and be yourself. Uh, and there's conflict going on and not seeing that conflict ever really resolved. It's just, um, it's like where there's a state of war, but the war is never, they never signed a peace treaty. It's like North and South Korea, never really signed a peace treaty. So they're always technically at war. Um, when you're growing up around that, it leaves a person feeling unsafe at a fairly fundamental deep level. And I didn't realize that this was kind of the core problem that I was struggling with, this feeling of, oh, I'm not re ever really safe because I can't actually be myself because if I say the wrong thing, there's going to be an explosion, people are going to be screaming, it's never going to really be resolved. Uh, and so, yeah, learning how to deal with conflict. And I noticed this a lot with other people and it's a it's a very common problem. I think a lot of people don't recognize that this fear of conflict, that if I actually stand up for myself, someone's going to beat me down. And it all comes back to experiences like growing up around a lot of unresolved conflict. And then that flowed on for me in terms of I wasn't very assertive when I went to school because no one had taught me how to be assertive in a practical way that actually resolved conflict. So that meant I was a natural target for the bullies who underneath it all are really insecure people looking to project their insecurities on somebody else by putting them down and uh, I didn't know how to stand up for myself so that all just that all just went to shit really um, so assertiveness is one of the core skills that I teach all my clients and um, in a sense it's amazing how simple it can be but it's also brings up a lot of anxiety about oh if I stand up for myself it's going to not go well I think this is fascinating it makes me think of some of the conversations I've had recently with clients who've had similar issues and some of the patterns I've seen. I'm curious what growing up, if you can remember back that far, some specific examples of situations where you didn't feel like you could be yourself or express yourself. That's a really interesting question. And it's one I've thought of a lot in terms of my experience. Uh, and because I've had a lot of therapy myself and some of that I've found very effective for dealing with this stuff. Some of I found it not so effective and it's led me to consider a lot like what really works in dealing with this and what uh, one of the things that does tend to work is going back to specific situations like you suggest and dealing with the emotions that's still bottled up in your nervous system about them. 
So one of them for me uh, actually wrote a song uh, as part of this process because I'm also interested in music as a ther uh, therapeutic thing or as a healing thing. And it's also just really fun to play music. And I'm now studying music full time in addition to working with my clients. So uh, your question was, yeah, specific time. And there was one particular I went for a therapy called EMDR, which is uh, Eye Movement Desensitization and Reprogramming. And this is intended to release the trauma from your brain so that your nervous system can calm down. Uh, and the therapist asked me to consider a particular scene. And I immediately thought of a time when I was in my parents' house. I was in a little room on the side of the house that we called the playroom. And I was playing with my toys. And dad was in his bedroom, my parents' bedroom, which was right next door. And he was muttering to himself, like quite loud, audibly. It was kind of disturbing hearing a man uh, talking like really loudly to himself and he was clearly very very angry uh, and I realize now that my dad just didn't have good skills for dealing with anger and so he internalized it a lot and it came out as this kind of seething resentment uh, that would rage and then my mum would walk in hear him muttering and say oh you stupid creature what are you what are you doing? And then there'd just be a, this big explosion because her her way of dealing with his anger wasn't constructive either or her way of dealing with her anger also <laughs> not very constructive. You know, to criticize and attack someone when they're very angry is not likely to form a kind of connection that could help them to release and resolve that anger in a constructive way. So I was just, remember, feeling very frightened and, um, and I didn't know how to deal with that fear either because no one had told me uh, and the people around me never seemed to say, oh, I'm frightened of this. They just weren't ever direct about their feeling. They didn't say, I'm sad about this. I very rarely saw either of my parents cry, for instance. Um, and, you know, I'm talking about over a very long period of time where they experienced significant losses, like people close to them dying and things like that. They're just They were very stoic. So that led me to feel like, oh, it's not safe. And when I say feel, like at a very deep level, I internalize this idea in my nervous system, essentially. It's not safe to express how you feel. If you're frightened, you can't actually say, I'm really scared. Um, or if you're sad, I didn't feel like I could cry. And certainly as a guy at all boys high school, if you were a kid and you were upset and you cried, well, that was just another opportunity for the bullies to put the boot in. So that didn't feel safe either. Um, so on the one hand, there were specific instances like that. But on the other hand, I think part of what makes this issue of growing up around people that don't express emotions in a safe way and then internalizing that, part of the problem of dealing with that is uh, it, it's such an ongoing thing that it's not always easy to identify what the specific instances were. I wasn't looking for necessarily one specific thing as much as I am sort of like the types of things that were happening that caused you to contract. Like one of the things that I've observed is that when people feel anxious or nervous or they, ha they have trauma, uh, they don't feel safe, they contract and shrink. And that shows up in their personality. It shows up in the volume of their voice, right? Somebody yells at them for being too loud. They get, they shrink down. It, it means that they take up less space whether it's where they're sitting or in a house or where they work, they take up less space and they're more hypersensitive to when their things uh, are beyond that space or outside of that space. It, I mean, shows up in all kinds of different ways. I noticed recently with a client, right, we're having this, a similar conversation and he was saying that he was on a date 
this girl goes to touch his arm and he flinches and she says sorry and for him that was something that he was aware of and he goes and i was like well what do you think was happening he goes is my mom growing up my mom would hit us a lot and she was super strict she goes all the other kids would be playing and we would have like a box we couldn't leave and so we'd watch other kids and we knew if we walked out of that box we'd get beat but it wasn't really the box on the driveway issue it was just that general approach to parenting created these constraints and this fear that it helped him survive to adulthood but it created situations as an adult as a 40 year old guy where a woman tries to touch him and he flinches and for her, she says, sorry, he realized, especially because he's working with me, that, oh, shit, this is an issue. This is some type, type of external feedback that's telling me this is an issue. And so we had to work through it. We did a bunch of role plays and, and practiced essentially touching so he'd stop flinching and, and help him become conscious. Because the first step is becoming aware, right? Once you're aware that you have this issue then or a issue, then you can start to work on it. But if you can't name it, right, you can't describe it. You can't give a, a story or an example. It becomes hard to deal with it. So, yeah, I was just sort of looking for something that maybe the listeners could identify with. But I think those are great examples. You talk a little bit about assertiveness and the ability to learn how to be assertive and how to properly express your emotions. Can you explain what that process was like for you and some of the things that you learned as you learned to assert yourself in a healthy way and express yourself? Uh-huh. Well, look, uh, it has been quite a process and I've, tr I've tried a lot of different things and to the degree of, you know, now I'm studying music, for instance, and I, I'm finding that incredibly therapeutic and healing and fun. And at the end of the day, this trauma stuff is deep and problematic. And when it be starts becoming fun, when dealing with some of these issues start becoming fun rather than like this is terrible and I can't deal with it then you know you feel like you're making real progress so um, yeah look a lot of it comes down to dealing with that fear when you talked about the client that was flinching you know it does it goes deep into the nervous system and uh, and you know he wasn't doing that voluntarily it was just the way oh I've been programmed because of the punishment and I relate to that. My mother was very critical and it wasn't also, it wasn't necessarily just her criticism of me, but her criticism of my father as well. Anytime my father was standing up for himself, um, he would basically get beaten down by my mother because she didn't always like the choices that he made. And that programs a guy with a dynamic that it's not okay to be yourself and it's not safe to make your own choices and that women won't like you if you do that, which turns out to be quite the opposite women are generally attracted to guys that make their own choices in life and are assertive and know what they want and go after it and uh, when you use the word contract to describe the effect of some of these influences in childhood that's a great way of describing it because it is like you shrink like your voice becomes softer and you can't yeah, you just feel like oh it's not safe to really be me um, so yeah, one of the healing things for me is playing music. I've also done a lot of personal development courses that were focused specifically on this um, factor of emotional expression. Um, I've done a lot of therapy. The therapy that worked, again, I can see now came down to that feeling. If it's just talking about things that are going on without out ever accessing the feeling, you can kind of go around and around in circles. Uh, you can end up just complaining a lot. I don't find that helpful. So it's really getting down into this feeling and underneath it all really is that feeling of fear. Uh, so learning ways to release the fear from 
your nervous system so that you can relax and you know a woman can touch you and you cannot flinch um, and also learning to be honest about that like there have been many cases now where I've been with a woman um, who might have just been a friend or maybe a lover and I've been feeling a lot of fear because this stuff's been coming up and initially I would be pretending that it's not there and uh, even trying to stop that shiver response that you get when you're frightened and then I studied trauma healing and a technique called somatic experiencing where you deliberately induce a shaking response so that your nervous system can let the emotional energy out which is what animals in the wild do when they've been traumatized they after the gazelle runs away from a tiger it'll it'll lie down and shake for a while to get rid of that energy because it's just saved its life but it's paid a high cost in trying to do so and so it needs to like release that um so yeah learning how to actually just tell women look i'm really anxious or i notice that my body's shaking when you give me a hug and, and notice that they don't actually go oh well i don't want to touch you then i don't want to talk to you which was my fear <laughs> um, so that's a long-winded answer but yeah really it comes down to a whole bunch of different processes and and ways of dealing with that fear that stops us from just doing naturally what we would do. A few things come to mind. One is that going back to sort of the emotional attacks, when you, we're emotionally attacked, again, we also contract and, and it could be physically, but could also be emotionally. We're going to have less bold dreams or we're less likely to be honest with the people around us about what we really want or what those dreams are because we're worried that they're going to judge us. And, and we might even begin to hate ourselves, right? If somebody attacks us too, too much, you have a person in your life. It could be your parents. It could be your spouse or girlfriend. It could be someone else. But you have someone in your life who is constantly attacking you because they're unhappy with themselves or have their own sort of unresolved issues. That, that will cause somebody to contract in both physically and emotionally in very meaningful ways that can be damaging and they can be damaging the long term. So I've seen this over and over in coaching. So I, I just want to articulate that because I want the people who are listening to be able to name it and recognize it so that they can work on it. Something else that you talked about and you brought it up a couple of times now is you've begun to use music to deal with trauma. And one of the things that I've discovered and I've become increasingly fascinated with is how we can use art to externalize these things that are inside and I've seen this in all kinds of different ways. I've seen it in therapy with military personnel who have PTSD and they draw pictures or they make art or you could write a song, you could do a play, but you do something to try to externalize what it is that you're feeling inside. And so that way you have a way that you can communicate and talk about it and express it and just get it out because the longer we hold these things inside and we sort of simmer on them and we're scared or we're fearful. I remember I had a client of mine who had a tough upbringing that caused him a delayed sort of development. And so he hadn't kissed a woman in his early forties. And so he became embarrassed that he had never kissed a woman. And so he started avoiding situations where he could be intimate with a woman because he was concerned that he would get figured out. So that, that was, I mean, that had this sort of unique challenges and eventually we figured out how to work through it. Um, but basically we need to help them start kissing girls. <laughs> and, and so it was less, it was less of an issue. But the idea is like helping somebody, it's really important when we have these things internally that we find some mechanism uh, or medium to externalize these things. Do you find that your music helps you do that? 
Ah, yeah, definitely. And, you know, what you said about internalizing and externalizing, and you mentioned self-hatred, like self-hatred is just when we internalize all this stuff. Um, uh, and the, the cure is to externalize it uh, and to learn how to express the rage, the anger that we feel and the shame that we feel about these things. And I think one of the great things about music in Western society is that it's one of the avenues that we have where it's okay to emote. Like generally, um, Western society, my, my experience of it is that it's quite repressive in terms of feelings, particularly for men. And so we end up with a whole bunch of stuff, like a backlog of unexpressed feeling that can go right back to your childhood. And uh, yeah, it leaves you hypersensitive. So music is great because it's a safe place when people hear music there's kind of an expectation okay we're going to be there's going to be some feelings flowing here whereas if we're not doing music then you know where else do you get the chance to really express that stuff and um yeah i understand that we want men that are grounded and solid and not emotionally volatile all the time but the way that you get to that is by releasing this stuff as it comes up rather than teaching boys you know it's not okay to have feelings keep you crying to yourself don't cry don't get angry it's not okay to be ashamed all those kind of messages so yeah when you're an adult and you go well i've still got this stuff but how am i going to deal with it and you get i got sick of going to therapy all the time <laughs> i realized that studying music would be a great thing and for me for my process i went to a music college that feels a little bit like school uh, as it turns out so it's been although I'm well and truly adult, I'm turning 50 on Saturday, it's been like going back to high school and revisiting some of those experiences where I feel like, oh, there's other kids here and are they going to be nice to me? You know, am I going to be, be bullied? All that stuff came up, which was good because it meant I could deal with it and learn how to interact with other young adults and mature age adults as an adult and, you know, say what I wanted and when people were behaving in ways I didn't particularly like in the classroom, like just doing things that were really distracting while I'm trying to play a song, learning to say, excuse me, could you please take that conversation outside? And then dealing with whether they went ballistic or whether they say, yeah, okay, that's fine. I know I'm distracting you. Um, so all those interpersonal challenges also come up when you're playing music, um, even in a band, like people, musicians tend to get together and form bands and bands have internal conflict to deal with. So, um, but you develop a sense of safety and trust because you know your other musicians, you know what they're good at. Uh, you want to work together because that's more fun than just playing solo a lot of the time. And so music for me has also been a way of learning how to uh, yeah, deal with the conflict that inevitably arises whenever you put a group of humans together and have some kind of common project to happen. So it's got lots of facets. There's like expressing yourself through the music and there's also the dealing with the other humans that you're interacting with. It made me think of a friend of mine who is a very talented singer and he claims that a lot of people, their singing careers begin to digress because the more they sing, they be, start to become self-conscious. And so what he meant is you're putting something out into the world. In this case, he's talking about people putting their voice out in the world, but it could be your voice. It could be a song that you play on the guitar or piano or some other instrument. And there is the opportunity for judgment. And so what he's saying is they shrink under the judgment, right? And so they start to shrink under that judgment and they start to let it control them and their artistry because they 
start to contract uh, or they contract too much, it starts damaging their career and they start looking for other outlets like drugs. And I don't know how much it's true, but I think it's a fascinating lens to look at this through because I definitely see some truth in what he's saying. What I found interesting is, is use music and uh, not only the music, but the music environment. But you also mentioned a few other things that you do. You said you learn to name what you were doing or what, what was happening. So you start to feel you're shaking and you say, hey, I'm, I'm shaking. Right. And so you express that. And that's something else. Another form of sort of externalizing the anxiety. You also talked a little bit about this idea of semantic healing and shaking something off. So, again, it's another way a physical process for externalizing these emotions and getting them out of your nervous system. So I think it's really cool. Are there some other strategies or things that you use or that you teach or things that you lean on that you suggest to somebody's listening and they're dealing with this that they can use to begin to express and get these things out of their system? Sure. Well, look, that one you just mentioned is probably worth revisiting and looking at it a little deeper. It's Profoundly simple. Um, <laughs> ironically enough, the kind of core solution to these problems turns out to be profoundly simple once you get it. It's just the fear and we haven't been taught how to do it. So really, um, and so the one I'm talking about is where you just name it. So you just name what's going on. And when you do this and you express it out loud, um, it, it tends to shift. Uh, no, sometimes it doesn't, sometimes it does, but what you're doing when you name it is you're releasing your attachment to any kind of meaning that it has and any negative self-judgment that you may have. And when you talked about performance and self-consciousness, uh, Lilo, you're absolutely right. If you if you want to bring this stuff to the surface so you can deal with it, then one way to do that is write it in a song and then go perform it in front of a bunch of people. Um, and I was in a studio yesterday recording a song that I wrote about perfectionism and it's actually the chorus goes, uh, you won't love me if I get things wrong, which is the core belief underneath perfectionism. And boy, that was an emotional roller coaster writing that song and then performing it in front of people because I would fuck it up the first time because I wasn't a very good musician, <laughs> wasn't very experienced. And then I'd feel this fear come up because uh, I oh, know they're not going to like me because I've messed my song up. But then that became funny because it was like, oh, I've just messed up the song about perfectionism. So I started to be able to laugh at the thing that had caused me so much pain and so i'm also really interested in comedy and how humor can also be a really healing way of dealing with just difficult stuff um so yeah it comes back to naming that thing and when it comes to emotions i have a list of like there's only really seven that i boil it down to just to make it really simple because i often find my clients just don't even know how they feel uh, and they don't want to get it wrong because they've been punished for getting things wrong in the past so i'm just like just guess. If you don't know, guess. If you get it wrong, you know the system will tell you. Um, so, yeah, it's like it's either anger, sadness, fear, guilt, shame, um, disgust. Um, but usually anger, sadness or fear is usually just one of those three. Guilt, shame are also quite big. Um, and, you know, as a coach, I've become very adept at picking this. So if my client can't work it out, I can just say, well, it sounds like you're angry. And they're like, oh, yeah, I am angry. And, you know, it's okay to still be angry about something that happened when you were five. The mere passage of time doesn't heal this stuff unless you've done something during that time that's let it out. If, if something traumatic, and when I say traumatic, uh, it doesn't have to be like, you know, near-death experience to be traumatic. It just has to be some emotional experience that you couldn't fully process and release at the time. 
many of my clients, you know, we're always dealing with stuff that goes back to childhood because that has the most profound influence. And once we do that, yeah, it gets released. So yeah, naming it, uh, expressing in some way, particularly the somatic stuff is about physicalizing that. So if you're fearful, allowing yourself to shake or even inducing a shake and just seeing where it goes. Um, again, playing music is good because you're physically moving when you're playing an instrument. Like I started playing drums and I found that was great for dealing with anger, which was a big deal. Um, yeah, learning how to deal with anger when I'd never been taught to do that in a way that was constructive. Um, and I've found many people are very uncomfortable with their own anger. So uh, part of the challenge of this freely expressing yourself is dealing with other people's reactions and learning that their reaction is not my problem. As long as I'm expressing in a way that's not hurting anyone. Um, if they get triggered by the fact that I say, look, I'm angry, um, then well, they get triggered because they got some stuff to deal with. And uh, you know, I don't want to shut down my emotional expression because it might upset or offend people around me. That's just my mother pattern going off again. So it's important to do it in a healthy way that's constructive so you're not harming anybody else, but then allowing other people to react however they react. You also, you mentioned comedy and I was thinking about comedians, particularly people like Chappelle. When I watch him, I feel like he's sorting out issues while he's talking. And it's so sort of fascinating. You can see him. And, and oftentimes when you get a comedian and they're on television or they're on like a bigger stage, at that point they've ran through something over and over and over and over. It starts to become polished, right? And so we see that polished result. And, and if we try to do, we compare ourselves with this polished result. And But a lot of big comedians or people who have been successful comedians, they work this stuff out. So they develop an idea and then develop it more and they test it and then test it and test it and refine it until they get to that point where they feel comfortable, where they, they'll do this on some type of special or they'll do this in a big scene. But they, a lot of them really need that safe space where they can start to nurture these ideas. But you're talking about what we're talking about here is it's just another form of externalizing them. And oftentimes behind the things that are funny, there's often pain and stuff that they're trying to sort out. Do you think that's true in your experience with comedy? Oh, yeah, look, definitely. Um, and my experience with it has been a little bit mixed. Um, I remember I, I, another approach that I've taken to some of this stuff, and it's something I highly recommend to anyone who um, is dealing with this contraction thing, is to go study acting, like find a good acting school and, uh, yeah, go do some acting classes because it's an environment where you will be repeatedly expanding your comfort zone. Um, it's hard to do this stuff in one hit and so finding an environment where you're just going every day, you're doing some exercises, you've got a good teacher that's leading you through the process of learning how to free yourself from your inhibitions. Um, yeah, I highly recommend doing acting classes and they tend to be a lot more fun than talking to a therapist. <laughs> I mean, talking to a therapist is great, like, you know, I coach one-on-one, -on -one, doing that all the time. But um, yeah, it's good to do other things outside that therapeutic environment that are also like life enhancing and fun. And one thing I noticed when I went to acting class was comedians would turn up because they'd be like, oh, this is really hard doing stand up and it's competitive and we love it, but um, we want to get on TV into sitcoms or something because that's where the big money is. And, uh, and it would be fun to do that. So they turn up to acting class and the school that I went to taught the Meisner technique and Meisner is sort of a very, it's quite an extreme technique that's totally into emotional honesty and connection. And um, it's kind of, 
the most extreme technique that I know of in that respect. So Meisner really wanted actors to be looking so genuine on stage because they were really going through all the emotions of the character. They weren't even using method acting where you think of something that generates the same emotion that you need to portray. They were actually like living the thing. So what would happen was these comedians would turn up and whenever something awkward happened in class, they would make a joke of it because that was their habitual way of dealing with pain in life. And the teacher would stop the exercise and say, no, I don't want you to do that. That's not authentic. So I realized that comedy and humor can be used to mask pain and to sort of keep it suppressed rather than actually dealing with it. But I could also see what you're saying where there's an avenue there where comedy could be used to actually work through some of this stuff and I'm like well that's interesting it's sort of double-edged and I started realizing everything in life is like this it's a everything's a double-edged sword there's upside and a downside and yeah I think the comedians that really do this well are the ones that talk about their own personal pain rather than just laughing at other people they've learnt to laugh at their own pain and heal it in the process so that it's not painful anymore and yeah, I see those those people in Chappelle, I'm thinking is probably a good example where he's like, you know, had a tough upbringing and background and now he's he gets to laugh at it all day. So how healing would that be? And people paying big money to do that. I saw him on stage, uh, I think it was last year, and it was just fascinating hearing him talk through some of the political things that I see my friends get angry about on Facebook and uh, he's sort of trying to sort through them or deal with uh, the fall of some of his idols, right? So some of his idols are falling in the media. And How do you deal with the fact that this person still was a major influence in your life or you aspired to be them or there, there's a lot of great things that they brought into your life and yet they also have these sort of demons and these other issues. And how does he as a human being sort of work work through these things? So it shows up in lots of different places um, with him, but I see it in other comedians too in that space. I also start thinking about, as you're saying, the a acting and the Meisner technique. I've taken a lot of acting classes and I find that they come up in here and they come up in my coaching in a lot of different ways. But I remember at one point feeling doing scene study that so I didn't study acting as a kid. I went as an adult. I just thought, hey, I want to take some acting classes. And I found it really fascinating the way it affected me. But I remember at one point going, wow, the only time I, I feel like I can really feel is like in a scene, right? And But one of the things that I learned in while taking the acting classes is you might be in an imaginary circumstance. You might be a character in a scene and there might be a situation and the other person's a character that somebody wrote out. But the goal is to sort of live that honestly on stage. You're reading lines but you're reacting to the other person honestly. So somebody uh, is sort of letting their inhibitions go and they say something and there's all this, not only the verbals, right? And the tone and inflection and all that, but there's also the body language and the way they enter their space or move out of their space and all these things that are part of human communication. And we're responding and reacting to those. And when you do that in an honest way, the scene comes alive, especially if the writing's good. But when you don't do it, then if somebody, somebody is self-conscious and they're thinking about the way that they look like in their mind's eye, they're looking at themselves across the stage or they're imagining they're the audience looking at they're no longer in the interaction. And that self-consciousness is, is usually what people are seeing when they just say, oh, that's, that was bad acting. It's disconnection. And the same thing is true in our relationships, right? When we're in the moment and we're open and we're reacting to the person that we're engaged with instead of our own issues or anxieties or whatever, um, then our relationships generally come alive as well. So 
the tools that you're describing that you've used to work through some of the issues in your own life, they definitely have helped me too. And you talked about trauma as a, as a child. And I mean, there's definitely things that I think popped up as an adult that I didn't realize that I was even suppressing because part of the, the come up in life where you're trying to figure out, break away from your family, find yourself a break away from your original tribe, figure out who you are, your identity, develop a craft, figure out how to build your own tribe, especially in your late teens, early twenties, even into your thirties. There's a lot of sort of like trying to figure out life and figure out who you are. And as Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? It's like first it's food, water, shelter, oxygen, the, the things that you need to survive. The next level after that is safety. Do I feel safe? If I can't walk down the street, I'll stop walking down the street. If I don't feel psychologically safe, I, I'm going to retract, right? Schizophrenia. And then the next stage after that is belonging. You can belong part of a group. You feel you can connect with people. And then the level after that is you acquire status. So and you move your way up until you can sort of get this idea where you can think back and reflect back on what you've done and grow from it and self-actualize. And one of the things that I've realized is that in the process of sort of life is when we're going through the come up, sometimes these things we have to suppress in order just to function. A friend of mine is uh, in the special forces and he comes back on a military campaign. He's like, my team killed 350 people. And I'm thinking, there's a lot for me to process and he's not processing it at all. And, and I, I had to tell him, I said, look, the way that you're talking about death is not normal. There's things that you're going to do in a situation where you're stressed that you're going to need just to survive. People are shooting at you and <laughs> you're going to have to suppress certain things because you can't think about, well, this is somebody's son or their daughter, or this is, uh, this person has kids and now their kids are going to like, this is a human being. And you can't, especially when you're in a life threatening a situation where your life is threatened, you're, you're going to have to suppress certain things to function. But at some point, these things generally come up. D does that make sense? Oh yeah. And, um, Look, there's a lot in there. Uh, I'm thinking of 10 things at once that I'd love to say, but I'll go with this one, um, that we adopt these strategies to survive, like you say. And uh, when we're a kid, uh, we adopt strategies to survive our childhood. And when we're in a situation where the people around us are not expressing their emotions in a safe way, not expressing them at all, or they're coming out as anger and uh, as rage and violence. Uh, anger is not, I don't have a problem with anger, but when it's coming out as door slamming and screaming and rather than people just saying, I'm really angry with you right now, because it's possible to just say that I'm really angry without like exploding. Uh, but you tend to explode if you bottle it up. So as a kid, we learn these strategies and to survive and it's important not to be hard on ourselves about that because those strategies do get us through you know they got your friend through the war zone but then later on in life we tend to hang on to those strategies and keep relating to people in the same way and a strategy learnt by a five-year-old or developed by a five-year-old rarely works well as an adult because you know adults uh, you know more mature but more different like the adult world is different to your five-year-old world and um, the other thing that came up for me when you were talking, a big thing we haven't talked about too much is emotional abandonment. And part of living in an environment where the adults are not expressing feelings in a safe and constructive way 
is that you get abandoned emotionally and it, this is traumatic but it's hard to spot because we grow up thinking it's normal like we only experienced the environment that we experienced growing up a lot of us just grew up in the one family and so we thought that was normal and when all the adults around are not expressing their feelings and not dealing with our feelings not um, helping us learn how to process and express those feelings then we experience emotional abandonment and that's traumatic and then later on in life our relationships particularly relationships with women that are more generally more in touch with their feelings they don't tend to go well and we go well what's going on uh, often it comes back to this well I was never really emotionally attached to my mother so my brain didn't develop the capacity to feel safe in the world and now I need to do that and a healthy relationship with a therapist allows you to develop a healthy emotional attachment to another human being and then learn how to process those feelings so they're not overwhelming all the time and we don't have to keep suppressing them and partly you talk about the friend that had gone to war reminded me when I read American Sniper the novel uh, and they made a movie out of it and he would be you know cool calm and collected while he was down in Iraq taking out all these people and then he'd go back to the States chill out for some R&R &R, and he'd start shaking and you know that's a classic like you know he's pretending that he wasn't affected by all this stuff but really you know you can't not be affected by stuff that happens so yeah it's um that's a huge thing when we're five we are dependent on the people around us for our survival and we are as an adult but not in the same way as a five-year-old if you are abandoned you are i mean it's very hard to function in the world right and so as an adult, we have sort of more resources available, more cognitive ability and more physical ability. There's just, we have more tools in order to find our own sort of safety and security. But as a, a child, we really are dependent on our parents and our immediate family. But that, if we don't feel safe, again, it goes back to sort of this idea of contraction. And I, I know that's something that you talk a lot about is emotional abandonment. Can you define what that is for the listeners so that they can? measure what we're talking about well i would say in terms of in childhood which is where it tends to have the most impact it's being around or in an environment where you don't feel safe to express your own feelings and the people around you are not expressing their feelings in a way that feels safe to you and so you're never really forming an empathic connection with the people around you and this can be very hard to spot if you've grown up like that because if you've not experienced it you kind of don't know that it's there you don't know that this is available or even a thing and in fact you're likely to be very frightened of it because emotional connection and empathy involves intimacy and emotional intimacy is not likely to feel safe if your brain developed in an environment where you didn't feel any emotional intimacy it's going to feel awkward at first and uh, it's it's a tough one i think for people to even recognize particularly if you were in a, a, a family that was stayed reasonably stable in terms of it's still together like my parents are still together they're in their mid 80s now um they never left me physically dad was a good provider Mum was always there and made my school lunches they did a lot of great things for me so how could i say i was abandoned like they're still around <laughs> um, but emotionally they've never been there uh, and it's the emotional abandonment that causes this feeling of I'm not safe to express my feelings or to be around people that are expressing their feelings. And one thing I've found studying music that I've been working through is I would get really anxious for the performer on stage 
because I'd be empathizing with the fact that they're putting themselves out there and I'd be sitting in the audience like having a panic attack and going, it's okay, Graham, everyone is safe. They're okay, I'm okay. Um, and that's led me to develop an interest in coaching performers because a lot of musicians and comedians, they're very sensitive people and they've often got a lot of unresolved trauma from the past that they're trying to work through. And I've had some experiences with fellow classmates where they were too anxious to perform and they'd say, could you just sit with me in the studio? One of the guys wanted me to sit with him in the studio. Um, I can't remember how he framed it. It was something about, you know, so that I can tell him what to play, but I'm like, okay, he's really, really anxious. And what he's really needing is just for me to be there. Um, but it's hard for a man to ask that when it's the core issue is anxiety. He probably felt ashamed of it. So I just sat in the studio with him and kind of coached him and he got through the song fine. Um, I thought, well, this would be fun to do professionally. Um, you know, I like working with members of the general public, but I think performers have a particular take on life. And I like the idea of performers talking about some of this stuff too to make more people aware. Like it's great what you are doing here, interviewing me and talking more about this stuff. So it's reaching a wider audience. Um, and I, lay, I like the idea of working with performers that are struggling with, because as soon as you get up to perform, all this stuff will come up. Inner critic goes ballistic if you've got one. Anxiety, what if I get it wrong? What if I get criticized? Um, yeah, it's amazing. Dating coach Chris Luna here. This is the perfect time to take a quick break to talk to you about three simple things that you can do to dramatically change your life. First, listen to this entire podcast and then subscribe through SoundCloud, iTunes, or Stitcher. This way you'll immediately be notified every time we share a new release. If you listen and apply the ideas we discuss on these podcasts, it will change your life forever. Second, go to craftchrisma.com, create an account, and become a member of our community. There you can read articles, listen to podcasts, watch videos, ask us questions, and document your journey in our forums. Great men don't become great on their own. All great men are members of a community, and Craft Charisma is your community. Finally, if you're serious, and I know that you are, about making massive changes to your life as quickly as possible, check out our live coaching programs on our website, Craft Charisma Live programs are the fastest way to improve your dating and social life. And who knows? Attend our live programs, let us get to know you, and you may end up as a member of the Craft Charisma team. Again, thank you for listening. Now back to the podcast. And, and it makes sense. We have to nurture these skills, right? Like they're not something we necessarily are born with. In fact, I would argue that we're not born with them. I mean, you think about, look at a baby and you look at the capacity of a child and you look at the capacity of a 10-year-old or 20-year-old or 30-year-old or 50-year-old or 80-year-old, all those tools that they went from birth to that point in life that you see them or experience them, all of them have been added post being a baby. <laughs> Otherwise, we'd be 80-year-olds who just cry and couldn't feed ourselves. And they're all added to sort of a fairly blank canvas, right? I mean, every child is innately a little different. Their biology is different. The nervous system is different. They're uh, it's wired a little bit different. They have certain predispositions that, that their biology is a little different. There's definitely differences, but it's pretty blank canvas compared to what we see as in 10 year olds or 20 year olds or 50 year olds. Sure. I mean, of all the animals, you know, biologically, humans have the least well developed brain at birth. And that's a function of the fact that our brains are so large and the size of a woman's cervix and all that stuff. So, uh, yeah, that means we have the least instinct of any animal and we have to be educated to do most of the things that we need to survive. 
The one thing I would disagree on, though, is that uh, the one thing that an infant has that we kind of need to get back to is this they're freely self-expressed. They haven't learned yet that you can't just express however you feel in the present moment. And so their and their emotions going up and down all the time. And on the, on the one hand, you kind of expect that from a newborn, but I also think parents who have not dealt with a lot of their emotional stuff because their newborn is so volatile, their stuff's going to get triggered. And one response is the parent tries to shut the newborn down, like stop crying, don't get angry. Uh, you know, if you're hungry, you just feed it. But it's not always easy to tell even if a child's crying because it's hungry or because it's upset about something. So a big part of this for me is learning to get back to a childlike state in the sense of you can express your feelings. Um, but as an adult, you can do it in a way where you go, okay, I'm having a feeling and I have a choice about how to express that and what to do with it. Like I might feel fearful, but I'll go, I'm feeling fear. Um, but I'm going to choose to do this thing that's important to me because my values say that that's more important than just saying, oh, I'm frightened. I, yeah, it's funny because I don't actually think of it as a disagreement. I think babies are do freely express themselves. But oftentimes that expression isn't always helpful because they're not very good at sort of articulating what it is that they're feeling, right? So they cry when they're hungry. They cry when they need their diaper changed and they feel uncomfortable. They cry when their stomach hurts. They cry. Like they don't have the same sort of, tools that we do as adults, they might be more freely express themselves, but an adult who has the ability to freely express themselves is going to have many more tools for sort of articulating uh, that. And one of them is language, right? So language is the way that we structure the world. So you walk into a new place and one of the first things one civilization does when they move into another civilization is if you look at history as they start renaming things. When somebody walks into uh, or they start into a relationship or they walk into a new relationship, they start naming things. Uh, you have insider jokes. And we use language to structure not only the world around us, but to give structure to our relationships. And so if you're a human being, whether you're a baby or you're uh, you're a 50-year-old or a 70-year-old, if you've never really developed those tools, then even if our language is always not totally efficient in expressing uh, how we're feeling, and oftentimes poetry, things like poetry or music are able to sort of capture things that we need to express without still like moving past some of the limitations of structured language, right? Um, I was thinking earlier about a teacher that I had. I was like in my late teens or the 20s and she tells me, you're brilliant, but you don't know anything about literature. And I just thought, well, why the fuck do I need anything about literature? Like, who cares? And But I, I respected her and she goes... You're going to go through things in your life and literature is going to give you the tools that you need in order to work through these things. And and so I said, you know, I trust her. And so I started reading some local authors. I grew up in uh, the Monterey Bay in California. And so I went to two high schools. One of the high schools I went to was also attended 100 years before me, approximately, by a guy who won the Nobel Prize. His name's John Steinbeck. So I started reading, yeah, I started reading Steinbeck. And then I started reading other people. And, and I started realizing that when I re would read these books and I read these characters and their internal thought process, and uh, I realized a human being wrote this and they were trying to get something out. And each of these characters is one of their children. It's something that it's like, it's them expressing something. Maybe they realize, maybe they don't fully realize, but it's a part of them because they were able to think it and feel it and put it onto a paper. And I thought, well, if, 
if this character is thinking this, then that means this writer was thinking this, and I'm also thinking it and having a similar sort of feeling. There's just like deeper truth that Steinbeck or Hemingway or Shakespeare, these, these a lot of the greats that they're capturing. And so maybe it's normal. And it also gave me sort of a vehicle to begin to talk about some of these things. And, and that's a process of both first becoming aware of it and then beginning to express it. What I want to describe is sort of what are tools that I found in my life that when you're uh, you're growing up as a man and, and people are telling you to be stoic and don't cry and if you cry, you're a, a pussy or you're a homosexual or whatever, all these things that guys say to each other when they're trying to negotiate hierarchy in a group. So they're negotiating hierarchy and so uh, they try to use sort of emotional dominance in order to get an edge. I guess what I'm saying is like for me, I, like I found that literature was another place where I could start to connect and identify with things. And, but I also want to say that being open is hard. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a hard thing to sort of put yourself out there, whether it's a song or you're saying how you feel or telling somebody how you feel, or just sort of being emotionally aware and present. I guess what I'm getting at is being emotionally open is hard and uh, it makes us feel vulnerable, but. Well, that's why most people don't do it. Um <laughs> Um, you've probably had the experience that I have that most people that could benefit from coaching don't do it um, because maybe they don't know what's available. Um, but yeah, it is pretty confronting. Um, but, you know, it's it's the fast track, right? You talked about self-actualization and ultimately that's what I want for my clients. They don't necessarily say that's what they want when they come to talk to me. That's kind of what's in the back of my mind. I want this person to be fully fulfilled in all areas of their life and yeah there's going to be some challenges and i i am a very empathic person and i'm very sensitive and i pick up when i'm talking to a client i will feel literally in my body i will feel a shiver when they say something that's really important and i've learned to listen to that rather than to just ignore it and go well hang on let's go back a step because you said something quickly and then you moved on. And that's another thing I also know, often notice. If someone says something that's touching on an emotion and I'll start to feel it and I can see them starting to tear up and then they'll move quickly away from it. I go, hang on, let's go back to that because you said something about your dad or your mom and what was going on there. And so I'll take them back to it. And yeah, I literally will feel it myself. And I think that's also why I get anxious when I'm watching performers that are anxious because I'm feeling some of their anxiety. And some of that's just, there's a bit more stuff there for me to process and work through. And some of it's I'm feeling a connection and there's vulnerability and intimacy and, and aliveness. And it's a sort of aliveness that I didn't experience when I was a computer engineer that was living in his head solving analytical problems all the time. This is how we connect with each other, right? If this wasn't true, if people didn't have the ability to do this, movies wouldn't work, right? So maybe it's hard to do this when you're sitting across from somebody on a date or with your family or with a friend or when you're helping somebody work through an issue because it makes us feel anxious. But movies are a place where people generally feel safe to do this, right? They're like, I'm watching this movie, I'm in this theater or I'm on my couch, I'm on my computer, lying on my bed, and I can just sort of watch these people interact and I can feel happy or sad or disgust or anger or frustration in a sort of a safe way, right? But it's a scary thing to develop, but that's how we build connections with other people, right? That's how you build real strong connections with your girlfriend or boyfriend or spouse or your husband or wife or your children is by being open and being present and being with them. Otherwise, we sort of, we shut down and you end up, as you described, sort of the definition of abandonment and we're we literally traumatize the people around us to a certain extent because they don't they don't feel safe. 
Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, I think you've nailed it. And like you say, movies are another avenue. I'd mentioned music before, but yeah, movies are another avenue where people are in our Western, fairly head-based, not very heart-centered society. People do have an expectation that when you go to a movie, you're going to feel stuff. And it's interesting because often um, I find that many people, particularly my clients, but just people generally can get overwhelmed with their emotions and feel at the mercy of them. And it's like, I've got no control over this beast inside me. And when it triggers, I'm in you know i'm incapacitated and so and this is why controlling people like my mother say try to control everyone around them and their environment so they don't have to feel their own feelings um, but one interesting thing is uh, you can actually generate feelings that you would like to have by going to see a movie that you like you can go and see a scary movie if you want to feel afraid or you can go and see a romantic movie if you want to feel love or you can go and see an action movie if you want to feel excited so uh, you don't have to be at the mercy of your feelings. You can actually, there are some tools and processes, and one of them is just going and seeing a movie or putting some music on where you can generate the feelings that you want to have. And I'm really interested in that side of stuff as well. In addition to just healing all the trauma and dealing with all those unpleasant feelings, um, what about, hey, we could maximize some positive feelings. It's just that you've got to do both of those. And I, I know quite a lot of people that are really into positive energy and law of attraction and affirmations and all that stuff. And I love that stuff. Sometimes I think, yeah, you're kind of avoiding some pain here, I think. You're not really feeling all that real to me. Um, so, yeah, you need you need both those two things. This is a whole other conversation I could talk about for hours because <laughs> uh, I'm fascinated by all this stuff too. What are some of the things that you recognize? You talk about being controlling an environment, right? So the anxiety, and people can do that physically. They can do that emotionally, right? They can do that through the types of questions that they ask a person that they try to control a conversation, right? So there's different ways that people could potentially do that. What are some of, some of the other things that you observe with your clients that they do? So if somebody's listening to this, they might be able to recognize this in themselves or in their environment. Well, the one that springs to mind is about making judgments rather than expressing or recognizing feelings. And I got this idea when I studied nonviolent communication, which is a system Marshall Rosenberg, who was a psychologist, came up with. And he realized that the more intellectual training he had, like he had a PhD and he was highly trained at therapy and counseling, he re realized that the more training he had on how to think, the less empathic he became and the less useful he ultimately was to his clients. So one of his ideas is just to recognize how you're feeling rather than the judgment. So if you've got some negative judgment about someone and okay, maybe like the women you were talking about that label other women as sluts or as whatever, you know, bitch about other people. So they're making a lot of judgments that are negative um, rather than going, oh, I'm jealous. You know, there's a feeling behind all our judgments and Ultimately, the judgment's uh, not going to help us deal with the trauma if there's trauma there because the judgment is a protective layer that stops us. And like racism is an example of this too. Like, you know, I don't trust other people of other races because I'm actually an insecure person in myself. So I will put them down. And, you know, the extreme neo-Nazi groups are kind of extreme examples of this. Rather than dealing with my own pain, I'll like label everybody else as um, bad in some kind of way rather than going, yeah, I'm, I'm afraid of people that are not of my race. And that's a tribal thing that's, to some extent, that's wired into us evolutionarily. So to function in the modern world where a lot of races intermix, if you want to do that effectively, there's some fear there you've got to work through. Um, but if you want to self-actualize and have a fulfilled life, I don't know any other way than to work through the fear that stops you connecting with other people.
uh, and the research shows that that's ultimately when the psychologists research like what makes people happy you know it's not the things you buy it's not the job you have i mean job all these things can contribute but uh, it's not where you live it's the connections you have with other people that form a sense of lasting fulfillment and even what you talked about the novels where people are writing these great works of art and literature are often talking about how people are navigating that social space like how do you deal with the fact that we're inherently hierarchical because that's wired into our brand yet we've got to be able to connect with people for fulfillment so you can't really just bully everyone to get to the top because you'll be really lonely and unsatisfied you need to be able to cooperate with people on that social stratum and a lot of works of literature about that problem and the hero's journey of growing up and like how do you navigate a world that's uncertain and people that are uncertain when some things tend to work and some things tend to not work but there's no guarantees as there's kind of big life questions underneath all these kind of things i like stories especially these older stories right these older religious texts where you look at like greek or roman mythology or some people take them literally and then there's other people who sort of have found a way to use them as metaphors and try to find like what is the lesson that's sort of trying to be captured i was watching a ted video the other day on narcissism the idea of the story of narcissist right like he's sort of obsessed with his own image in a pool of water and then drowns because he can't love anybody more than he loves himself right like somebody observed that phenomena a long long time ago they observed it in the world around them and people around them and they turned it into a story but there's this really deep truth that's there right like this person was so in love with themselves that they destroyed them like this idea that okay this person's so in love with themselves that they're disconnected from other people and they destroy themselves in the process like that's universal right and so we can see that all around us and if you go back and you look at these old stories and you take them literally it's like easy to reject them because you're like well that stuff doesn't exist right but if you think like what are the main themes that are happening here it's there's oftentimes there's a reason why people still find meaning thousands of years later because there's this like deep human truths well they talk about yeah universal human experience and uh, yeah i relate to what you're saying um part of my my spiritual journey if you want to phrase it that way is i grew up in like we were christians we went to church every sunday which was part of the disconnect in my head that my parents could be so horrible to each other emotionally and yet we'd be taken to church where the preacher would be talking about love and then come home and have a screaming argument and uh, it was just like oh it's crazy but I, I hung in there with it until my mid-30s where i decided it was all made up and became an atheist and then uh, rejected the whole thing and threw it all out and went not none of that was true didn't ever happen and then um, hung on to that and i became quite militant as an atheist because uh, it was important to be right like my parents arguments being right was really important you know my sense of safety was even attached to that because who was right and who was wrong was who was going to win or lose the argument and if you lost the argument you just got destroyed so it was very important that i'd be right and i tried to tell my christian friends that they were wrong and <laughs> became a real asshole. and uh and then just recently i've been watching jordan peterson's series on the psychological significance of the bible stories because he's got this blend of he really blends psychology with the spirituality stuff and even the fact that he he is i think he is theistic like he really does believe in god if you ask him when interviewers ask him face point to point he avoids the question but i think really he does believe in that there's a god out there um but 
as an I'm still an atheist, but hearing his interpretation of these stories helped me kind of put some of my anger about that to bed because like, oh, I wasn't lied to. It's just I was told a story that can be interpreted as a child one way and can be interpreted as like a middle-aged person another way or as a more mature person in another way. And it's there's profound truth in all of it. I've gone through a very similar process and I find his content absolutely amazing. And I don't agree with everything that he says. You don't need to agree with everything someone says in order to get immense value out of it. And I, as I listen to Jordan Peterson talk about some of these stories, these biblical stories where you're right, like as a kid, I took them literally and I just said, well, this is inconsistent with science and it's wrong. And then I would also, as a young man, hear people who are sort of more militant and taking all of these things literally. One of the things I've learned from listening to Jordan is there are deep meanings behind some of these stories and whether it's a religious text in any religious text or it's a mythology or a fable, there's definitely things that you take off your literal hat for a second and you ask yourself and you'll say, well, there's 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 meaning there that's useful and there's a reason why this has value to people and potentially have value in my own life. doesn't mean that it will. It might give you a little bit of empathy. Yeah, you're right. The childhood interpretation I had as a kid was this got to be literally true. And it's just, that's a way of dealing with anxiety. Like I can manage my anxiety if I can know what's true and how things work. But a more adult response to that is to go, okay, there is uncertainty in the world. The world tends to work a certain way. And some people describe that as kind of as God. Like if you interact with the world in a certain way and you follow these rules then the world will tend to react back in a way that is good for your life and so there are commandments and rules that you can follow which will help you but there's no guarantee of all those things and so you kind of nailed it when you said you don't agree with everything jordan says but there's a lot you've learned from him and i think that is a very adult mature way of approaching a mentor all my mentors, I realize, looking back, have been flawed human beings because we all are, but I've learned a lot from them. And I've seen people go, no, I'm not listening to that guy anymore because he did this one thing that I don't approve of. And I'm like, okay, that's a bit black and white thinking. Um, all that other stuff is still valuable. It's still meaning in all those stories that I could apply if I want to. Uh, I don't have to throw the whole thing out just because it's like, I don't agree with this one thing. Um, on the abandonment theme, one of my mentors described what I now call cutting the emotional umbilical cord to your mum, like learning how to be your own man regardless of what your mother is feeling. Uh, I heard that described as learning to tolerate a parent's distress. And I see this in my clients all the time. They're very worried about upsetting their mother. And I'm like, look, your mother is a human being and uh, there are things in life that are going to distress her. So you don't need to go out and deliberately do things to upset her. But if you're going to be your own man, you need to learn to tolerate the fact that she's not going to approve of everything you do. And sometimes she'll be upset and you'll need to go, well, I hear that you're really upset, mom. And um, I need to do what I need to do. I had a client the other day and we were talking about expressing what he's feeling or what he wants and i'm like you're going to express that and sometimes people aren't going to like sort of what you think or what you feel when we'll often say like oh i just want a guy to be themselves right and guys are like well i've been being myself my entire life and it's not working but are they really being themselves like are they fully expressing themselves are they being honest like and, it, and these are hard things to do and i told him i said look just just tell the girl what you need from her 
and let her react. And you might not get the reaction that you're hoping for or want, but just put it out there and let her react. And one of the things that he's learning is when he does this, when he says, hey, I need this from you, he might not get it right away. She And she might throw a temper tantrum or disagree or storm out. But as long as he's being reasonable, that's all he can do. And what will happen is he's not intentionally trying to hurt her. He's just telling what he needs and he's expressing that. And he didn't think he could do that growing up. And so he realized that she might go back and have to process this, but she'll come back a week or two weeks later and she'll have changed a little bit. And he thought he was helpless in these situations. And what he's discovering is he's not helpless that when you're a five-year-old and you upset your mother or you upset the people around you, you have to really worry about what are the consequences of upsetting them? And are you going to get abandoned both whether it's emotionally or physically, like are these people going to protect you? Cause you need their protection for survival. And so some of these things carry on, but what he's learning is these things that he picked up as a, a young man or as an adolescent or as a child that as an adult, like he needs to, it's important to ex- be himself, express what he's feeling or thinking, try to name it, try to get it out, try to articulate it. And it's through that language you're going to structure the relationship. And all he can do is express those things, be honest about them and let the person react and, so that was sort of one thing that came to my mind. Another thing that came to my mind, I had another client who told me, it's a six-year-old man. He said, I didn't feel like I could fully express myself till my mom died. I didn't feel like I could be in a relationship with a woman until my mom died because he said, I was so concerned about sort of my mother's reaction, my mother's validation or whatever, that I couldn't be in a relation with somebody else, uh, with another woman. And so I found that really fascinating. He didn't think he could do it till. Literally, his mother died. The third thing I want to bring up, and this is sort of a different tangent, but I think it's worth articulating. I had a have a friend of mine who's a professor at NYU and Columbia, and she talks about when you're writing. She thinks one of the ways, the best ways to get published. She even wrote a book on this. She's written like ten or eleven books. She says you write about some of your worst experiences, and she goes, "You make them your best experiences." And so she talks about basically writing the power of writing about traumas. And then she goes, a lot of times we're anxious and inhibited. It's hard to do. It's scary to put these things out there. And then if you're someone who wants to write, you want to get published, you want to build a career around this, you use these things to get your first book published and you use these things to make it the best experience of your life. And so I I think that's a, a really fascinating way to think about for somebody who's doing art to express. You don't need to publish a book. Maybe it's the first time you walk on stage as a comedian or the first song that you ever wrote that you're actually proud of. Or maybe it's just the first song that you ever wrote and there's some proud about that or maybe it's something that turns into a hit or maybe I mean there's like the definition of success doesn't need to be critical acclaim. It can just be literally the simple things, being able to articulate what I'm feeling to another person or doing something that I've never done before. And because there's a growth process and expansion process where you're no longer letting these things control you, you're beginning to expand. Does any of this resonate with you or? Oh yeah, totally. Look, this is my whole life journey you're talking about here. Um, You know, getting to the point where things that used to be traumatic and very upsetting, I can now laugh about and laugh with other people about because part of my fear is, part of my fear about being a comedian is that people are going to laugh at me. And um, (laughs) part of me wants them to laugh at the stuff that I want to be funny, but I also really want to be taken seriously because these are all basic human needs. It sounds funny, right? You want to be taken seriously as a comedian. (laughs) 
Yeah, totally. I don't want people <laughs> laughing at me because I'm a goofball, silly, you know, the kid that's still being bullied by the audience. That never feels good. And, you know, I sense the energetic difference when it's like people are on my side and they're like, yeah, you go, Graham. And when people are like, yeah, we're actually laughing at you because that passive aggressive part of us that, you know, needs someone to bully is choosing you as a target. Uh, I, I don't like that. And I sense the energetic difference feels totally different to me. Um, and I've recently been going to a laughter club and um, the premise of this laughter club is we laugh for no reason. So it's sort of the antithesis of what I want to do as a comedian in terms of being on stage, but I'm going because I'm finding it healing to just be able to lie on the floor with a bunch of people and laugh and be silly and get over my inner critic that judges silliness because my mother couldn't tolerate it. Uh, and anyway, the woman that runs it keeps singling me out and making jokes at my expense. And which is against the charter of the club and it's against what she teaches when she's running trainings on this stuff. And she said that last week and she comes to me and said, I don't know why I do that. And, and I said to her, well, you know, I'd prefer that you didn't. And usually I make a joke in response to her making, singling me out because I just want to diffuse the tension and I don't want to, you know, get upset. But it doesn't feel good to be treated in a way that I don't like. And I said to her, yeah, I'd really prefer if you didn't do that. And she goes, I don't even know why I do it. I suspect she's got something going on that might be worth her exploring, but I wasn't there in a coaching capacity and boundaries are really important. That's the key thing I teach my clients. So if I'm at, a, at something like I'm participating in a club, like my laughter club, I'm not there as a therapist or a coach. I'm there as just a participant like everybody else. And I'm not here to, I'm not dispensing wisdom. I'm not trying to crack jokes because that goes against the ethos of the thing. I'm not there as a comedian. I'm just a human being. So yeah, and I felt really good to stand up to her and say, look, I really don't like it. Even if you're doing it sort of playfully and in fun, it's not feeling good to me. And she's like, yeah, uh, that's, it goes against what I teach anyway. And I'm like, yeah, it's incongruous. Did she bring it up or did you bring it up first? Um, she brought it up. She, in fact, she brought it up in front of the group, which was also a bit weird. Um, so I think she's got a bit of insight into her behavior that's not appropriate. Well, it's, it's funny because sometimes, I mean, different things can be triggers, right? And who knows what the trigger is for you, right? Like it could be anything from something you say to something about your personality to your reminder of an ex or she's attracted to you. Like it could be all kinds of different things, but I mean, it, it's great that at least she was able to articulate it because then you can begin to have a conversation about it and it's not you just feeling insecure about it. It made me think of a situation I had with a girl that I was dating and she's trying to be really sexy. And I met her at this after a wedding. So they'd been like sipping on wine basically all day long, I don't know, 10 hours or something. And nobody was like stumbling, but everybody was buzzed. And I, I get there at like 11 at night or something and everybody is on a whole nother vibe because I've been doing other things all day, not drinking and not sort of in this environment or whatever. So anyway, we get home and she's trying to be really sexy and I just started laughing and, and she got really upset and we couldn't talk about it till the next day. But she goes, remember when I tried to be sexy and you laughed at me? And I knew that I had to address it because otherwise I didn't want to create a trauma in her. And I just said, look, you were on a different a wavelength last night because you and the same thing I noticed when I went to the party even before we went back home because everybody had been drinking and they're through, they went through a wedding that's an emotional spirit. They were just on a different wavelength and you thought you were being sexy and you're a little buzzed or whatever because you've been drinking. And for me, like I just was on a different emotional plane. Like I and it was hard for me to get on that same emotional plane with you because I didn't go through any of the experiences that you had just gone through. Yeah, right. 
so I, I knew that I had to bring it up and talk about it with her because I didn't want to create a trauma. And so I was just I was saying, look, I didn't I didn't mean to laugh. I'm not making fun of you in any way. I think that you are sexy. I just was on a different wavelength. And sometimes in life that just it just happens. It happens sometimes in relationships, sometimes within relationships, it happens in certain situations and it's normal. And I'll even argue that in some ways it's unavoidable. But what we can do is we can talk about these things afterwards so that they don't become permanent pieces of the trauma that we uh, develop with another human being. It's funny because going back to theater and acting and the thing I kept thinking about was I had a scene that I had done one summer. I decided to do an acting conservatory for fun while I was in New York. And and actually the scene was started off just, this is exactly what it was. Like the husband and wife come home and they're getting ready for bed and the wife is drunk and she's putting on her makeup and she's putting it on and it's all screwed up. And like, I mean, this, this is not stuff that's in the scene like written the scene, but it's something that like the actor makes a choice. What was happening was you had this girl who was drunk. The husband was sober. Uh, he drove home or whatever. She's drunk and she's trying to be sexy and seduce him. And she doesn't realize that like, she just it looks like a sloppy drunk. <laughs> and, uh, and so I was like, the reason why I probably laughed was because I thought of the scene. Oh, I remind you of saying, yeah, it, it yeah. reminds me of the scene. She's try, she thinks that she's being sexy and I'm laughing because I, I thought of the scene that I experienced. And so I acknowledge, I acknowledge you for cleaning that up with her because it's those, it's the sort of thing where you could kind of go, oh, it's not a big deal. We, we don't need to deal with this because sweep it under the carpet. But those things actually accumulate over time when we're not, when we're having these interactions that don't go as well as we'd like for whatever reason and we're leaving someone else feeling in an unpleasant state. Um, so I acknowledge the leader of this uh, club, for instance, as well, because she did come to me afterwards and talk over what was going on. And so we could you know, get a bit of clarity about it and I could be assertive with her and say, yeah, I don't actually like it when you do that. And, you know, like you could clear it up with that girl that you were having this other thing about another scene and it wasn't about her being sexy, really. And you were just not really part of the environment because you hadn't been drinking for all that long. Um, so that she, like you described, she doesn't have to end up traumatized by this little thing. And a lot of little things can add up to a feeling of, oh, it's not safe to be me. I had a roommate who was pretty young. I mean, this is a long time ago, maybe 10 years ago. And he's, but he was quite a bit younger than me at the time. And I told him at one point, I said, look, every day we can make the apartment like 1% better. And over the course of time, we'll just continue to build a better home. Or you can let it deteriorate 1% a day. And then over time, we're going to live in a shithole. And I think relationships are the same way. And it's hard, right? Like to constantly be working towards improvement because it's work. It takes an actual effort. And sometimes we just want to be slobs or want to be lazy or want to take a break. Um, but our relationships, I think, are the same way. And it doesn't mean that I think it's feasible for us to constantly be improving every single relationship in our lives. Sometimes some relationships are going to die off and then they're going to come back and some will never come back. And But for the relationships that we choose to nurture at a given time, those relationships, I think it's a process of constantly, to a certain extent, there is always some level of cleanup, right? You're constantly having to try to improve them. And sometimes it's going to be natural because you're just going to have positive experiences. And sometimes you're going to have negative experiences. And when you have those negative experiences, or one person perceives them as negative or whatever, you're not on the same wavelength or plane or then language, we use language as one of the tools in order to try to sort of clean that up and improve it. And I mean, that, that's one of the realizations that I've made and I'm only sharing that with sort of you and 
as a consequence of listeners because I hopefully that it's helpful for them in some way. Yeah, totally. And there's a bigger picture theory that the people that we attract into a relationship with, not just intimate partners, but people generally, to some degree, will hit our hot buttons and will bring up this stuff for us to deal with, the sort of the trauma stuff that we started talking about at the beginning. So I think you're right. There's going to be times when it's easy and plain sailing and relationship is fun. If you're not having any fun, if it's all work, then something's not right. But invariably, you know, the house metaphor is a good one. You know, your house gets dirty and you've got to bring out the vacuum cleaner and clean it every now and then so that you can enjoy having a nice place. There's something else I wanted to articulate too, and that was that with this teacher, it's great that she was able to do that and you were able to respond by telling her this bothers me. But it also is important to realize that once you get out of this class, you might not have a relationship with her and that might not matter, right? And so what you don't want to do is let like this person who sort of floated through your life for four weeks or eight weeks or 12 weeks while you had this class affect you long-term. And, and I find that as I get older, I realize that there are experiences in my life that that's happened. I, I remember having, when I was at Columbia, I had this writing teacher who I thought I was a pretty good writer and she gave me a lot of negative feedback and I realized this, it took me years. I just sort of stopped writing and didn't realize I stopped writing. It wasn't until I started working with some writing teachers way later on that I realized like I could write. And these are people who were fairly well-respected. One of them used to be uh, an editor for this guy, David Foster Wallace. He's a, a very famous writer. He ended up killing himself. And, um, but he was on the cover of Time magazine. He was like, I'm a very, very famous writer. And uh, she used to edit his work. And knowing that she used to edit his work and having her tell me, you write well. Like you're like, and her really being into some of my work or, or giving me the impression that she was helped me recognize and deal with that. This other teacher, even though I was in her class for half a semester, or maybe it was almost the entire semester really sort of traumatized me in a certain way. And, and it caused me to inhibit myself. And I had another teacher. It's funny because I've been talking more and more about acting, but the other thing I wanted to mention was I had this teacher who talked about this book. Uh, it was a play I can't think of the name of it, but this guy drags around this goat and I bring it up in the podcast and what he said really resonated with me and it was and maybe it was just his interpretation, but he said in this play, this guy drags around this goat on stage through all these different experiences and he goes, people might look at it as a literal goat and they miss the whole point. It's all the things that we drag around in life as we get older, right? In uh, the Christmas story, it's the chains that one of the ghosts is dragging around, right? It's like... It's just this crap that we accumulate and we have to clean up as, as human beings. We're constantly cleaning up with ourselves. I have to clean it up. You have to clean it up and we help our clients clean it up and try to give them directions. They clean it up. And is there anything you want to add before we sort of wrap this up? Yeah, we've covered a lot of things. Well, the thing that was on my mind about what you just said was these opportunities with people in our adult lives now are also opportunities to heal the stuff that we didn't get as a kid. So it wasn't okay. It didn't feel safe for me to say to my mom when I was a kid, hey, I don't actually like the way you're treating me. Like this freaked me, that freaked me out totally. So to be able to say to this other woman, because we unconsciously project stuff onto other people, to be able to say to her, I don't actually like the way you're treating me. And for her to say, I'm sorry. I won't do that again. Um, you know, that's a really healing thing to just be assertive. So, yeah, there's going back and doing childhood regression to deal with trauma. There's also just facing these events when they come up in your daily life. And um, that's what I coach my clients on a lot. It's being assertive in their daily life so that they get 
quick results and they're empowered and they're no longer going, oh, I just keep rerunning my mum pattern all the time. Like, all right, well, we're going to stop doing that. Um, so, yeah, look, I really love talking to you. I, I could talk for weeks on this stuff because I, I find it fascinating. I think people are interesting. And, um, yeah, I really appreciate the opportunity to connect with you, Christopher. It's been a blast. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you again for coming on the show. Thanks, Christopher. I really enjoyed it. Thanks, man. It's Dating Coach Chris Thona here. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. And we absolutely love making this podcast. We make this podcast for you. So if there's somebody that you want on the show, let me know. I will yell, scream, stand in front of their house, do everything I gotta do to get them on the show for you. Also, don't hesitate to follow the podcast on SoundCloud and iTunes and Stitcher. You can also give us a shout out through social media, Facebook, Twitter, share it with your friends. And lastly, go to the Craft Christmas website and create an account. There you can talk about the podcast and communicate with me directly. So thank you again for taking time to listen. You will hear again from me soon.